Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The Law School of America. Restraints of trade is a common law doctrine relating to the enforceability of contractual restrictions on freedom to conduct business. It is a precursor of modern competition law. In an old leading case of Mitchell v. Reynolds, 1711, Lord Smith L.C. said, It is the privilege of a trader in a free country, in all matters not contrary to law, to regulate his own mode of carrying it on according to his own discretion and choice. If the law has regulated or restrained his mode of doing this, the law must be obeyed. But no power short of the general law ought to restrain his free discretion. A contractual undertaking not to trade is void and unenforceable against the promiser as contrary to the public policy of promoting trade, unless the restraint of trade is reasonable to protect the interest of the purchaser of a business. Restraints of trade can also appear in post-termination restrictive covenants and employment contracts. United States. In the U.S., the first significant discussion occurred in the Sixth Circuit's opinion by Chief Judge, later U.S. President and still later Supreme Court Chief Justice, William Howard Taft in United States v. Addiston Pipe and Steel Company Judge Taft explained the Sherman Antitrust Act of 1890 as a statutory codification of the English common law doctrine of restraint of trade, as explicated in such cases as Mitchell v. Reynolds. The court distinguished between naked restraints of trade and those ancillary to the legitimate main purpose of a lawful contract and reasonably necessary to effectuation of that purpose. An example of the latter would be a non-competition clause associated with the lease or sale of a bake shop, as in the Mitchell case. Such a contract should be tested by a rule of reason, meaning that it should be deemed legitimate if necessary and ancillary. An example of the naked type of restraint would be the price-fixing and bid-allocation agreements involved in the Addiston case. Taft said that we do not think there is any question of reasonableness open to the courts to such a contract. The Supreme Court affirmed the judgment. During the following century, the Addiston Pipe opinion of Judge Taft has remained foundational in antitrust analysis. The 1911 decision of the Supreme Court in Standard Oil Company of New Jersey v. United States relied on Taft's rule of reason analysis. In that case, the court concluded that a contract offended the Sherman Act only if the contract restrained trade unduly that is, if the contract resulted in monopolistic consequences. A broader meaning, the court suggested, would ban normal and usual contracts, and would thus infringe liberty of contract. The court therefore endorsed the rule of reason enunciated in Addiston Pipe, which in turn derived from Mitchell v. Reynolds and the common law of restraints of trade. In more recent cases, courts continue to base their rulings on the Mitchell framework but attention has turned to such issues as necessary to do what? And how necessary compared to collateral damage. For example, even if a restraint is necessary and ancillary, within the meaning of the Mitchell and Addiston pipe cases, it may still be an unreasonable restraint of trade if its anti-competitive effects and consequent harm to the public interest outweigh its benefits. Thus, Judge Ginsburg opined in the Polygram case. If the only way a new product can be profitably introduced is to restrain the legitimate competition of older products, then one must seriously wonder whether consumers are genuinely benefited by the new product. A related issue is whether, even if a restraint is necessary and ancillary, available means exist to accomplish the desired result which are less harmful. The FTC DOJ 2000 guidelines for collaborations among competitors say that, 
In determining whether a restraint is reasonably necessary, the issue is whether practical, significantly less restrictive means were reasonably available when the agreement was entered into. In other cases, questions have been raised as to whether the restraint was necessary and ancillary to accomplishing only something unworthy of recognition, given the resulting harm involved. In one recent case, a court rejected a credit card issuer's attempted justification of a restriction against competitive dealings said to be reasonably necessary to promote loyalty and cohesion. How necessary and necessary to what thus remain controverted issues under the doctrine of Mitchell v. Reynolds. England and the UK. Restraint of trade in England and the UK was and is defined as a legal contract between a buyer and a seller of a business, or between an employer and employee, that prevents the seller or employee from engaging in a similar business within a specified geographical area and within a specified period. It intends to protect trade secrets or proprietary information but is enforceable only if it is reasonable with reference to the party against whom it is made and if it is not contrary to public policy. The restraint of trade doctrine is based on the two concepts of prohibiting agreements that run counter to public policy, unless the reasonableness of an agreement could be shown. A restraint of trade is simply some kind of agreed provision that is designed to restrain another's trade. For example, in Nordenfeld v. Maxim, Nordenfeld Guns and Ammunition Company a Swedish arms inventor promised on sale of his business to an American gun maker that he would not make guns or ammunition anywhere in the world, and would not compete with Maxim in any way. To be a valid restraint of trade in the first place, both parties must have provided valuable consideration for their agreement to be enforceable. In Dyer's case a Dyer had given a bond not to exercise his trade in the same town as the plaintiff for six months but the plaintiff had promised nothing in return. On hearing the plaintiff's attempt to enforce this restraint, Hull J exclaimed, Purdue, if the plaintiff were here, he should go to prison till he had paid a fine to the king. The common law evolved with changing business conditions. So in the early 17th century case of Rogers v. Perry it was held that a promise by a joiner not to trade from his house for 21 years was enforceable against him since the time and place was certain. It was also held, by Chief Justice Koch, that a man cannot bind himself to not use his trade generally. This was followed in Broad v. Jolliffe and Mitchell v. Reynolds where Lord Macclesfield asked, what does it signify to a tradesman in London what another does in Newcastle? In times of such slow communications and commerce around the country it seemed axiomatic that a general restraint served no legitimate purpose for one's business and ought to be void. But already in 1880 in Roussillon v. Roussillon Lord Justice Fry stated that a restraint unlimited in space need not be void, since the real question was whether it went further than necessary for the promisee's protection. So in the Nordenfelt case Lord McNaughton ruled that while one could validly promise to not make guns or ammunition anywhere in the world it was an unreasonable restraint to not compete with Maxim in any way. This approach in England was confirmed by the House of Lords in Mason v. the Provident Supply and Clothing Company. Restraining Workers. Under English law, restraining clauses in employment contracts are enforceable if there is a legitimate interest which needs to be protected. Examples of such interests include business connections and business secrets. The restraint is reasonable, for example sufficiently protects the interest and goes no further. Generally, if a restraining clause is found to be unreasonable, then it will be void. In certain circumstances though the court may uphold it either by construing ambiguities or by severance. Severance consists of the application of what is known as the blue pencil test, if individual words which make the clause excessively wide are able to be crossed out and the clause still makes grammatical sense, without altering the nature of the obligations, then the courts may be willing to sever the illegal aspects of the clause and enforce the remainder. Contemporary Application Though the restraint of trade doctrine is still valid, The current use has been limited by modern and economically oriented statutes of competition law in most countries. It remains of considerable importance in the United States as does the Mitchell v. Reynolds case. 
Tortious interference, also known as intentional interference with contractual relations, in the common law of torts, occurs when one person intentionally damages someone else's contractual or business relationships with a third party, causing economic harm. As an example, someone could use blackmail to induce a contractor into breaking a contract, they could threaten a supplier to prevent them from supplying goods or services to another party, or they could obstruct someone's ability to honor a contract with a client by deliberately refusing to deliver necessary goods. A tort of negligent interference occurs when one party's negligence damages the contractual or business relationship between others, causing economic harm, such as, by blocking a waterway or causing a blackout that prevents the utility company from being able to uphold its existing contracts with consumers. Description. Tortious interference with contract rights. Tortious interference with contract rights can occur when one party persuades another to breach its contract with a third party, for example, using blackmail, threats, influence, etc., or where someone knowingly interferes with a contractor's ability to perform his contractual obligations, preventing the client from receiving the services or goods promised, for example, by refusing to deliver goods. The tortfeasor is the person who interferes with the contractual relationship between others. When a tortfeasor is aware of an existing contract and deliberately induces a breach by one of the contract holders, it is termed tortious inducement of breach of contract. Tortious interference with a business relationship. Tortious interference with business relationships occurs where the tortfeasor intentionally acts to prevent someone from successfully establishing or maintaining business relationships with others. This tort may occur when one party knowingly takes an action that causes a second party not to enter into a business relationship with a third party that otherwise would probably have occurred. An example is when a tortfeasor offers to sell a property to someone below market value knowing they were in the final stages of a sale with a third party pending the upcoming settlement date to formalize the sale writing. Such conduct is termed tortious interference with a business expectancy. Negligent tortious interference. The above situations are actionable only if someone with actual knowledge of, and intent to interfere with, an existing contract or expectancy between other parties, acts improperly with malicious intent and actually interferes with the contract expectancy, causing economic harm. Historically, there has not been an actionable cause if the interference was merely negligent. However, some jurisdictions recognize such claims, although many do not. A tort of negligent interference occurs when one party's negligence damages the contractual or business relationship between others, causing economic harm such as, by blocking a waterway or causing a blackout preventing the utility company from being able to uphold its existing contracts with consumers. Case Law An early, perhaps the earliest, instance of recognition of this tort occurred in Garrett v. Taylor, 1620. In that case, the defendant drove customers away from the plaintiff's quarry by threatening them with mayhem and also threatening to vex, them, with suits. The King's Bench Court said that the defendant threatened violence to the extent of committing an assault upon, customers of the plaintiff, whereupon they all desisted from buying. The court therefore upheld a judgment for the plaintiff. In a similar case, Tarleton v. Magali, 1793, the defendant shot from its ship, Othello, off the coast of Africa upon natives while contriving and maliciously intending to hinder and deter the natives from trading with plaintiff's rival trading ship, Bannister. This action caused the natives, plaintiff's prospective customers, to flee the scene, depriving the plaintiff of their potential business. The King's Bench Court held the conduct actionable. The defendant claimed, by way of justification, that the local native ruler had given it an exclusive franchise to trade with his subjects, but the court rejected this defense. The tort was described in the case of Keeble v. Hickringle, 1707, styled as a trespass on the case. In that case, the defendant had used a shotgun to drive ducks away from a pond that the plaintiff had built for the purpose of capturing ducks. 
Thus, unlike the foregoing cases, here the actionable conduct was not directly driving the prospective customers away, but rather eliminating the subject matter of the prospective business. Although the ducks had not yet been captured, Justice Holt wrote for the court that where a violent or malicious act is done to a man's occupation, profession, or way of getting a livelihood, there an action lies in all cases. The court noted that the defendant would have the right to draw away ducks to a pond of his own, raising as a comparison a 1410 case in which the court deemed that no cause of action would lie where a schoolmaster opened a new school that drew students away from an old school. The application of the above has since been modified in UK law. In OBG v Allen, 2008. Wrongful interference, the unified theory which treated causing loss by unlawful means as an extension of the tort of inducing a breach of contract was abandoned, inducing breach of contract and causing loss by unlawful means were two separate torts. Inducing a breach of contract was a tort of accessory liability, and an intention to cause a breach of contract was a necessary and sufficient requirement for liability, a person had to know that he was inducing a breach of contract and to intend to do that a conscious decision not to inquire into the existence of a fact could be treated as knowledge for the purposes of the tort, that a person who knowingly induced a breach of contract as a means to an end had the necessary intent even if he was not motivated by malice but had acted with the motive of securing an economic advantage for himself, that, however, a breach of contract which was neither an end in itself nor a means to an end but was merely a foreseeable consequence of a person's acts did not give rise to liability, and that there could be no secondary liability without primary liability, and therefore a person could not be liable for inducing a breach of contract unless there had in fact been a breach by the contracting party. Causing loss by unlawful means, acts against a third party counted as unlawful means only if they were actionable by that third party if he had suffered loss, that unlawful means consisted of acts intended to cause loss to the claimant by interfering with the freedom of a third party in a way which was unlawful as against that third party and which was intended to cause loss to the claimant but did not include acts which might be unlawful against a third party but which did not affect his freedom to deal with the claimant. Strict liability for conversion applied only to an interest in chattels and not to chooses in action. This was too radical to impose liability for pure economic loss on receivers who had been appointed and had acted in good faith. This also left open the position where they breached the duty of good faith. Typical examples. Tortious interference of business, when false claims and accusations are made against a business or an individual's reputation in order to drive business away. Tortious interference of contract, when an individual uses tort, a wrongful act, to come between two parties' mutual contract. Elements. Although the specific elements required to prove a claim of tortious interference vary from one jurisdiction to another, they typically include the following. The existence of a contractual relationship or beneficial business relationship between two parties. Knowledge of that relationship by a third party. Intent of the third party to induce a party to the relationship to breach the relationship. Lack of any privilege on the part of the third party to induce such a breach. The contractual relationship is breached. Damage to the party against whom the breach occurs. The first element may, in employment at will jurisdictions, be held fulfilled in regards to a previously unterminated employer-slash-employee relationship. In California, these are the elements of negligent interference with prospective economic advantage, which the plaintiff must establish. An economic relationship existed between the plaintiff and a third party which contained a reasonably probable future economic benefit or advantage to plaintiff. The defendant knew of the existence of the relationship and was aware or should have been aware that if it did not act with due care its actions would interfere with this relationship and cause plaintiff to lose in whole or in part the probable future economic benefit or advantage of the relationship. The defendant was negligent, and 
Such negligence caused damage to plaintiff in that the relationship was actually interfered with or disrupted and plaintiff lost in whole or in part the economic benefits or advantage reasonably expected from the relationship. Some cases add that a defendant acts negligently only if the defendant owes the plaintiff a duty of care. California and most jurisdictions hold that there is a privilege to compete for business. Under the privilege of free competition, a competitor is free to divert business to himself as long as he uses fair and reasonable means. Thus, the plaintiff must present facts indicating the defendant's interference is somehow wrongful, for example, based on facts that take the defendant's actions out of the realm of legitimate business transactions. The competition privilege is defeated only where the defendant engages in unlawful or illegitimate means. Wrongful in this context means independently wrongful, that is, blameworthy or independently wrongful apart from the interference itself. This may be termed use of improper means. Commonly included among improper means are actions which are independently actionable, violations of federal or state law or unethical business practices, for example, violence, misrepresentation, unfounded litigation, defamation, trade libel or trademark infringement. Other examples of wrongful conduct are fraud, misrepresentation, intimidation, coercion, obstruction or molestation of the rival or his servants or workmen. Damages. Typical legal damages for tortious interference include economic losses, if they can be proven with certainty, and mental distress. Additionally punitive damages may be awarded if malice on the part of the wrongdoer can be established. Equitable remedies may include injunctive relief in the form of a negative injunction that would be used to prevent the wrongdoer from benefiting from any contractual relationship that may arise out of the interference, i.e., the performance of a singer who was originally contracted with the plaintiff to perform at the same time. Additional example. Tortious interference with an expected inheritance, one who, by fraud, duress or other tortious means intentionally prevents another from receiving from a third person an inheritance or gift that he would otherwise have received, is subject to liability to the other for loss of the inheritance or gift. The Law School of America The content used in the podcast is licensed by the Wikimedia Foundation incorporated under a Creative Commons attribution, share alike license. The text has been modified for audio. The content of these podcasts is for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. These podcasts are not associated with the Wikimedia Foundation in any context. The Law School of America